Okay, so I, I'd like to start with um, to, just asking you to tell me something about the. And this is a huge question, and obviously we'll just we'll just won't won't know everything. They're all huge questions. That's true. You know, I'm I'm curious if you could just say a little bit about you know the questions and the longings that led you to become what someone has called a translator of God into English. I might, I think I might call you a tra- a translator of con- conversation between human beings and the divine. <laughs> well, tell me about the longings and the questions that, that sort of took you into this. Well, my story um, is a pretty clear one, actually. Uh, when I was 22, I broke up with my first girlfriend. She broke up with me, t- to be accurate about it. <laughs> and... Um, the pain in my heart was so intense and seemingly unbearable that I I just didn't know what to do, how to deal with it. And over the next uh, few months, I was drawn to the book of Job because I felt something resonating inside the end of the book of Job um, that seemed to me a true encounter with human suffering and um, the deepest insight in Western tradition and that was all I knew at the time. So I, th- I felt that if I could somehow understand what was going on at the end of the book of Job, I would have reached that place of insight and breaking through into something else. And so, uh, and then be able to deal with this pain that I was feeling. And so um, one thing led to another, and I read, I kept reading the King James and felt that I could get deeper. And so I learned Hebrew and after a year or so, I discovered that the text was in some disarray, and I had to learn textual scholarship and a few ancient Near Eastern languages. And uh, eventually, six years into my project, when I had a text in English that I was quite happy with as far as literature goes, um, I realized that I wasn't going to understand it that way, that I would have to meet it embodied in the flesh. And so... I began to learn Hindi. I was going to go to India and try to meet a master. And before I even could leave, um, halfway through my Hindi course, I bumped into a Zen master and saw the answer in his eyes and stayed. Hmm. And then um, that led to um, intense Zen practice. And I had my experience um, a year later and found myself standing in that place uh, where I felt Job was written from. And that's just the beginning of the story, but um, that's how it all got started. And when you're talking about the end of Job, are you speaking about when God speaks back to Job? Exactly, the, the voice whirlwind. from the whirlwind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is a, uh, a magnificent and a notoriously um, enigmatic passage. Mm-hmm. And um, I felt that I had uh, understood this for the first time uh of anyone in in our Western culture, uh, after Blake, uh, Blake had an amazingly profound insight into the end of the Book of Job. But I felt that none of the theologians had. Uh, say some more about that. I mean, what were you missing, and what were you finding there that was well, illuminating? Well, everybody um, more or less sees the end of the Book of Job as a um, an an intense, magnificent bullying. Um, and the basic understanding is, you know, how can you question God? Where were you? And et cetera, et cetera. And uh, ultimately, shut up. You're just immortal. Um, and I felt that that was 
a priori a a, a um, totally inappropriate and and unesthetic way to conclude this most magnificent of um, books from the Bible. And when I penetrated further into it as a result of my own experience, I saw something really different, and I wrote about that in uh, the introduction to my version of the book of Job. There's something, there's something, there's a God beyond God who's, who's able to speak here, and um, the voice uses language images of animals of the of the freedom of the um natural world of the hugeness of the world beyond good and evil to to point to um job that there's something beyond the personal beyond suffering that he is not understanding even when he is um at his most brilliantly persuasive and um uh, moral and um, and admirable. There's something much vaster at issue, and if he could only let go of those human categories, he might be able to penetrate. And finally, he does. And so, the what happens to him in in my version, which I feel is in the Hebrew, is very far from what happens in the King James version, where he becomes a kind of um, penitent sniveling little worm at the end who's who's um given into god's authority mm-hmm. there's a great difference between submission and surrender surrender is an opening of the heart into um what the western tradition calls the divine and that's i, I felt very strongly that that's what happened at the end of the book of job and um so so i had my answer and i was able to to embody that in the english of my version um so in in the context of of that um and and your life at that time i mean what how do you think how did you think about prayer then i mean was that a text that you would meditate upon um it w- it wasn't a text i would i would work with it certainly but for me that text was what you would call in the zen tradition a koan not a prayer um a koan in in that it was a um a a spiritual um riddle or or conundrum um that i was i was deeply committed to somehow resolving for myself and uh, it felt like i was going to suffocate if i couldn't understand it you know that that somehow i would die to myself if i if i um if I couldn't penetrate. So it was not something that I was reciting or saying to anybody outside. It was something I was gnawing at like a dog on a bone. Um, and the the persistence, I guess, that I had no choice but in putting into practice uh, was what carried me through, I feel, in retrospect. So if if working on a koan in Zen tradition is a form of prayer, which you could argue both ways, then it was certainly a prayer for me. So you then um, became Buddhist eventually. Well, right? no, no, that's not accurate. Okay. I I I plunged into Zen practice mm-hmm. um, with my whole being, but I I never felt that I became Buddhist. It was some it was a path that was very appropriate and powerful and helpful for me. I never felt that I left uh 
my Jewish roots at all. It was just um, um, not becoming anything different, but but finding a path that really worked for me at that time, mm-hmm. and meeting somebody who who lived the deepest truths that I was um, in love with. So uh, it just happened to be Zen Buddhism. All right. Well, then I'd like to follow what you what you said a minute ago. If if you if you can consider um, Zen meditation uh, a, a form of prayer, you know what what would that say? about prayer I mean how and I mean the simpler question would be you know what what is the what is the relationship what are the parallels between meditation um, as it is manifested in in Buddhist tradition and in other traditions uh, and what you knew from your Jewish upbringing as prayer well what I knew um, when I was a child was was something very unattractive it was it was rote it had nothing to do with the heart it was a congregational kind of drone um and it wasn't ever real to me um when i was involved with things jewish later on in my early 20s um i was intensely involved in the jewish tradition in many many forms i lived in jerusalem for a year as well went to um pray with a, a Hasidic community in Brooklyn um, very often with um, friends of mine. And so what attracted me at that point was the fervor and the um, wholeheartedness of the experience. Um, and it was, a, it was a social experience, too, which was quite wonderful. Later when I began to experience the texts of um, Hinduism, I guess that was what came first, the Bhagavad Gita and the Upanishads, my whole sense of God blew to smithereens. There was something much vaster than what I had thought that I was praying to. So so, um, when I began to practice Zen... I was simply submitting myself to a, a practice that, that I uh, saw embodied in this Zen master that I had met. The similarity is that there's a great concentration uh, and a quieting of the mind and, and entering into um, a space of communion, but it's not communion with something outside. It's communion with something that can't even be called inside or outside. Um, and in the in the at the beginning, in the rare spaces when the the, the cloud cover of my thoughts lifted, um, I could sense um, I could sense the answer to Job very vaguely and distantly. But it was it was there. I knew that it was somewhere inside me, and that there was some kind of access to it eventually if I persisted long and and deeply enough. So you could say concentration is one one similarity. And you know when you say that you could sense the answer to Job, I mean, could you could you put some more words around that? What oh, what was a, some of that answer? I know this is hard. I here's how I can approach it. I can't put the answer into words. Mm-hmm. What I can tell you is that the experience was 
once once I had that glimpse, and it was only a first glimpse, um, all the questions that I had about God, the world, human suffering, my own suffering, how to how to resolve the pain in my heart, how to help people, etc. Um, all of that disappeared. There was there was no question because I had become the answer, and everything was so movingly, spectacularly clear. Um, it was it was just um, the most um, incredible sense of resolution that I had ever felt up to that point, and what I had read uh, of parallel experiences in the Zen tradition and others um, made me think that this was really genuine, and, and my Zen master confirmed that. It was just a, a glimpse, and there was a lot more to be done later to, to, um, to look, look more deeply and to um, let go of some of the obstacles to this kind of clarity, but it was a genuine glimpse, and um, the point of it was that the the questions that I had been so desperately grappling with were no longer there. There, it was all obvious. Can you think of a particular moment of insight, um, the form that clarity took? Well, I I know the moment very well. There was a, a an instant of seeing. Um, I know the the place, the time, um, where everything was transformed um, and and this feeling never left me afterwards I mean this the that kind of clarity never left and that's consistent with um, what does happen to people um, I'd have to say that the most spectacular example of this that I know of um, is um, what happened to my wife Byron Katie we have a new book out loving what is and she she woke up one morning not knowing any tradition, Christian or Eastern, whatever, and from a, from a 10 years depression became um, totally filled with peace and, and joy, and that never left her since 1986. So this kind of thing can happen outside of any teaching or tradition. It's rare, but, but it is possible. Right, but then, um, I mean, the clarity can come and that sense doesn't leave you and that has that has happened to you that's entered your experience but then life continues to be to be messy right <laughs> mm, uh that's not my experience no no um when when the mind is clear life becomes very clear and um you know your whole sense of what is a problem changes too um things are just given decisions are just just arrived there's no there's no effort, there's no, you know, conscious choice, you know, you're just a, a wide open channel for what, what wants to happen. So I, I don't experience that messiness. Um, that, okay. When you talk about, um, this, that it is all inside you, though, it's, you're, it's still something much larger than you, right? It's an ultimate reality. Well, it's uh, much larger than <coughs> who you think you are. Mhm. Certainly. It it intrigues me that even, you know, even in 
the Hindu tradition, I believe, and correct me if this is wrong. I mean, mm-hmm. there, there is a, and even and in Buddhism, there there the word prayer is used in, when people are speaking in English, at least. Yeah. And so when when you talk about prayer in those traditions, um, you know, how do you, how how would you explain the the use of that word? Well, I'm not enough of a of a scholar to give you probably. Um, the most accurate answers. No. My my experience yeah. of of Hinduism is through living and working with the Bhagavad Gita, translating the Bhagavad Gita, mm-hmm. um, and of being very intimate with the writings of um, probably the greatest sage of the 20th century, Ramana Maharshi, who died in 1950. So, in some in in most Hindu traditions, from what I know. There is prayer, uh, and in the Bhagavad Gita, you, you do, in in some of the paths, in the path of devotion, for example, pray to Krishna, and, and eventually, if um, with enough love and persistence, you become one with Krishna. Um, in some Buddhist schools, again, there there is prayer to the embodiment of the absolute truth, um, in the pure land, it's it's a form of the Buddha called Amitabha, and um, again, that's a path of devotion. And your your the prayer is a kind of pouring out, a, a surrender of the individual self to the ultimate reality, who takes the f- form of this or that. Um, in other forms of Buddhism, for instance, the the form that I was trained in Zen, um, there's no such thing as prayer in that sense because mm-hmm. you're not there there's nothing outside that you're talking to um there's simply a, a stilling a concentration of the mind or a, a, a wrestling with it with a spiritual question a koan that will bring you into yourself and eventually what you hope to a deep insight into ultimate reality so, so the prayer for you always imply talking with something outside? Well, that's how it seems. Um, in in the Book of Psalms, which is the great prayer tradition mm-hmm. of the of the Western prayer world. The prayer book of the Bible. Pardon me? The prayer book of the Bible. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I, I've also done a, a very free version of Psalms called A Book of Psalms. Um, you, you're, here you are standing praying to a you, a God who whom you address in the most intimate terms, and um, they're very moving, um, beautiful moments that that lots of people use um, as an entry into something larger than than themselves. Um, all of these ways can lead to uh, a much deepened sense of who you are and and what the world is and what reality is um it's just a different direction um i would say i was interested when i looked at your anthology of sacred prose the enlightened mind Mm -hmm. that the yes the very final words are of the french philosopher simone Weil, who was the atheistic religious person i believe and she wrote absolutely unmixed attention is prayer well that's a marvelous definition um and for her it would have been um 
I love that. I think that that could be as close as someone can get to a, a, a wonderful definition of prayer. Um, in that sense, prayer has nothing spiritual or religious about it. A mathematician working at a problem or a, um, you know, a, a little kid trying to pick out scales on the piano is, is a person of prayer. How's that? Say some more Well, you know, with complete, absolute, unmixed attention, she's saying, she's not saying prayer is absolute, mi- unmixed attention. It's the other way. The attention itself is the quality that she wants to call prayer. So whatever context you're putting it in, whether it's in inside a church or, or um, you know, inside a toy box, that's the quality that is um, the sacred one. Where there's nothing else in the world but that little girl's a- attempt to um, draw a red circle or that physicist's attempt to, to um, make sense out of apparently messy facts. And I suppose if you, um, even in, a say, a Hindu view of the world where, where divine reality is, is in everything... Um, and I think that you can find that impulse also in in the theistic traditions in a different way. Mm-hmm. That that also makes a connection between. I mean that it's it's it it is then attention to something ultimate, right? Even the piano keys or the the, well, the scientific problem. Yeah, in that sense, everything is ultimate. Um, here's what um, my wife says. Uh, in Loving What Is, this new book that we have. Um, The direct path is God is everything, God is good. When you know that, you don't need a spiritual method. And somebody who actually lives that is living at a level where every breath is prayer, every, in in Simone Weil's sense, every every step, every experience, putting, you know, um, a cup of decaf to your mouth, um, making love, walking down the street that's a life of prayer because everything in in that person's consciousness is is good is god even the most what what to somebody else would seem the most difficult or um uh un, unacceptable experiences it's all it's all embraced because it's all reality um and therefore it's all god and therefore it's all good. And and yet you have you know you've devoted your life to um to translating and making accessible the these these writings that come from spiritual methods and and sacred traditions which are, are keepers of of religious insights. Right? So I mean that's still an imp- these are still important important parts of our reality. Well, I would say that I've I wouldn't say that I've devoted my life to them. I have fallen in love with over the years with a number of texts and consciousnesses, um, like mm-hmm. the poet Rilke, yes. and and I've I've um, entered into a process with each of these texts that I've fallen in love with, or or it could be an image when I when I've written fiction, um, and my my desire has been to enter a state of intimacy with them. So I spend six months or a year or 17 years as with the book of Job. And that's, 
that's a great joy because I'm in love with these consciousnesses. And at the same time, I realize that they're completely disposable. They're, you know, their finger is pointing at the moon in an old Buddhist metaphor. So that it's not, it, it's it's the words and it's what shines through the words uh, that I really care about and that I deeply love. And um, any of the great texts, the greatest texts, let's say, like the Tao Te Ching and the Bhagavad Gita, um, self-destruct. They point to their own um, to their own uh, lack of necessity, to their own um, I won't say inaccuracy, but but to the fact that they're they're there's something larger that's speaking through them, that's shining through them, and it's not their words that are important. And you're not going to get it that way anyway. Once you once you penetrate into yourself at at a certain depth, then you'll see that they're that they're true and that they're absolutely unnecessary. So so that for instance, the Bhagavad Gita says, um, uh, just as a river uh, a town at the edge of a river doesn't need a well. Um, so somebody who has seen the truth doesn't need this, even the greatest written scriptures. And and the Tao Te Ching, likewise, will say, you know, I I call it the Tao, um, because, for lack of a better word. Oh, okay. You know, I mm-hmm. I love that quality mm-hmm. about these texts. There's such humor in it and such mm-hmm. humility. It's not um, it's not what we're used to with scripture, right. in the Western world. Right. Um, sorry, my producer, Brian, you wanted to hear the, the boot, the, it's not the, f- sorry, I'm just listening in my headphones. Mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. You just want to hear it again. The, the, the Buddhist, me- the metaphor of pointing, pointing the finger at the moon. Um, say that in your words. Okay, okay. sure. Um, there's an old Buddhist metaphor that compares scripture, even the most holy, sacred text, to a finger pointing at the moon. If you look at the finger, you're not going to see the moon. What the whole point of the finger pointing is, is to draw your attention to the moon. In other words, to what is beyond the finger out in reality. So it's not the text itself, but at what what it's directing your attention to that the text feels is important. But, you know, you've had this great privilege of, of, um, of pointing and <laughs> helping other people see the moon through these, these various uh, insights of many people. And I guess I just, for the purposes of this, I want to dwell with the riches Sure. You know what I'm I'd saying? I'd be happy to. I and love the text. I mean, I love Rilke. and I, I love Rilke in German. Um, I think he he is his own language, really, in some ways. And, and so, you know, Rilke, and I think I probably first read you as a translator of Rilke, um, uh, is not writing prayers strictly, right, mm-hmm. in terms of it's not scripture. But mm-hmm. in some ways, what's happening there, the dialogue and the words that he puts around his insights, his illumination, um, um, 
are, are a form of prayer, or you could think of them that mm-hmm. way. It's a, it's a conversation with God. Um, Many people do. Yeah. yeah. And that's true. I mean, a lot of the w- things you've worked with are, are, strictly speaking, poetry. I mean, mm-hmm. the book of Job is a poem, and mm-hmm. I, I suspect that one of the reasons we don't always get out of it what we should is that we're not reading it as poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree. You know, so mm-hmm. d- what? how do you think about the the relationship between these forms of language, poetry, and sacred prose? You know, give, be specific. I mean, give me some examples of what's touched you and what we, what is for you most important about the idea of prayer, experience of prayer in human life. Well, those are, again, really big questions, yeah. and I'll, I'll try to, um, to take them one by one. Um, about poetry, my experience of Rilke was of reading him when I was in my teens. I think I was 19. I was in Paris, and my girlfriend at the time gave me um, the book of Letters to Young Poet. It was in French translation uh, oh, since we were in Paris, and I felt uh, just really blown out by the by the in- intimacy of this writer talking about love and and uh, beauty and solitude in ways uh, that I had never even guessed at. It was just a, an incredibly powerful experience for me, and I, he was really my first experience of a, of a teacher. And so when I got back to America the next year, I was 20, um, I learned German in order to read his poems in the original, and I had never heard such music and language uh, before or or since really the beauty of it was just um astounding um the closest i had heard was to that kind of formal beauty was yeats mm-hmm. and um i think it's a great secret because we don't think of german as a beautiful language and it's not usually but with rilke it is just exquisite ju- you know it was just so so deeply moving and inspiring and um you know it was always the 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 benchmark of poetry for me mm-hmm. um even I remember something that um, um, Maria Tsvetaeva said, the great Russian, 20th century Russian poet, writing to Rilke. Um, she said, you are poetry itself. And a lot of people have that experience reading Rilke. There's just something something so intensely beautiful about his um, poems that it's a high point for many people. But I think also, and it's not only the formal beauty of those poems, it's also that Rilke was writing from a depth of experience that communicates something about to people, to a lot of people who don't feel open to quote-unquote religious texts or spiritual texts. Um, It communicates something of the the vastness of the world, of, of the depth of experience. And Rilke himself was not a very clear person, but was had a profound connection with something um, something else, let's say. So mm-hmm. anybody reading the Duino Elegies or the Sinus to Orpheus especially, I think, is in touch with um, a larger sense of human possibilities at the very least. And I think that's why so many people who wouldn't open the Bhagavad Gita or even the Tao Te Ching can have found something more through Rilke's poems. And and those poems at times do do take a form of prayer. Um, Explicitly, mm-hmm. yeah. There's a whole early book of um, 
of um, poems written in the in the persona of a monk. In the Book of uh, Hours. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so they are, and they're very beautiful um, and personal and and charming um, and searching. So how would you say, um, for, as someone who's been steeped in those in those writings of Rilke, I mean, how do those inform or expand your understanding of what prayer is, can be? My understanding? Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, well, they're, they're very much, I mean, as brilliant and as profound as, as they are, they're very much within the the Christian tradition of praying to something on the outside. And um, ultimately, they're an expression of passionate frustration, I would say. Um, as great as the Duino elegies are, they're, they're not... Um, they're poems of um, ultimate impossibility. The the Im- imagination of the angel figure in the Duino elegies is is um, of something that a human can never be, and therefore desire always shoots way past um, the sense of the possible. So, uh, I think if I were to choose a universe to spend the rest of eternity in it would not be Rilke's it's it's not a very happy place as gorgeous as it is um where he he ends up in the um Sanus to Orpheus um, there's less of a sense of prayer there than in the elegies for example and um he's he's much more uh it's much more a, a sense of praise and, and a this is another you could say praise is another mode of prayer mm-hmm. it's not it doesn't have to do with longing it has to do with um um being totally concentrated at, in simon Weil's phrase concentration in the present and appreciation of everything in the present from a a piece of fruit to a horse in the meadow to to um a human being, and so that you could say that um, that's, th- in Western terms, that might, might even be the highest form of of um, verbalized prayer. What you find in the Sonnets to Orpheus. There's a um, Sylvia Borston, I believe, is a friend of yours who yes. writes about um, being a faithful Jew and a passionate Buddhist, and she's written that for her. <coughs> I'm sorry. There's a connection between praying and falling in love with life. Well, that's a very lovely way of saying it. Yeah. um, I think her her sense of prayer would probably be very close to the the sense of praise um, that I was just talking about. Mm -hmm. And um, it's a wonderful thing to be in love with where we are already um, whether or not it's expressed and um, as I said before in this larger sense of prayer there don't have to be words to it there it can be just um, everything everything that you do from moment to moment is an expression of your gratitude and um, um, 
experience is gratitude in that in that way of living and there's nothing that has to be said and there's no one that it has to be said to you're just um you're just expressing life as it comes with 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 such clarity with such open arms that um there's nothing left but prayer and this you know uh, this really goes in a way against the grain of um, what the word means in English, or traditionally means. So um, prayer has such a strong image of asking for something and of asking for some from somebody outside that I tend not to use it this way. But it, it can be used this way, you know, in the sense of um, total gratitude because um, there are a few people through the centuries who have lived it. Yeah, I, I, I think those may be your last words. That was very beautiful. And I, I, I think we're drawing to a close. But I just want to say, you know, a sort of irony that strikes me um, as, I start, as I think about your work and started thinking about today is that you, you have worked so intensively with words, um, but I sense that your real passion is, is for experience and and that the traditions that you're most drawn to maybe personally have more to do with silence. Um, is that is that fair? Well, from the beginning, I think that's what that's where you end up in the book of Job, in this vast um, open-hearted silence. And I think that's where all all of the most profound and beautiful words lead, uh, Rilke's included. Um, he, he he would sometimes talk about what what lies on the edge of words, and um, I think you're right. Any any words that penetrate deep enough know that there's something much more important than words, and they're the most they can do is um, speak with a kind of beauty and depth that will point beyond themselves that's great um, I just want to see if my producers have any questions that have arisen yep okay thinking about this subject of prayer and in all the ways that we've been approaching it and moving away from it mm-hmm. um, are there particular texts that you've translated that, that feel important to you and we might have some readings you know interspersed with, with this conversation between you and me and, and do you have I mean sort of if there's anything that you would that you would say now um, that you have in your mind um, or uh, and also if you would want to recommend some that we might select Okay, uh, I'll, I'll have to move to. I'm not at home now, so okay. I have a few a few books in my wife's closet. Great. Um, do I do we have time for yeah, me to sure, get up and, and look? Mm-hmm. Okay. If you, uh, one would be great, more would be even better. Okay. Well, I 
getting us in. Yeah, okay, we're ready. And um, and this is a a glimpse uh, at a not only a certain kind of meditative state, but a certain way of living life that is uh, we what we might call a life of prayer in the Western tradition. So this is chapter 16 from my version of the Tao Te Ching. Empty your mind of all thoughts. Let your heart be at peace. Watch the turmoil of beings, but contemplate their return. Each separate being in the universe returns to the common source. Returning to the source is serenity. If you don't realize the source, you stumble in confusion and sorrow. When you realize where you come from, you naturally become tolerant, disinterested, amused, kind-hearted as a grandmother, dignified as a king. Immersed in the wonder of the Tao, you can deal with whatever life brings you. And when death comes, you are ready. Thank you so much. Oh, you're so welcome. Uh, this was a, a wonderful interview. Oh, and I enjoyed it thoroughly. Great. You're a very good interview. I'm so glad. Well, um, my producers want me to ask you one other question. Uh, um, we we put uh, you know we we put uh, conversation and and sound and music uh, in these in these hours of radio too. I think. Um, not only because it's good radio, but to evoke sort of the layers of uh-huh. spiritual experience. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about music that's that is important to you that might be appropriate to surround um, this conversation and these readings. Mm. Um, well, I'm not a judge of that for radio. I can tell you what you what, like, what I love, yeah, what I most love. Um, and that would be um, something like the uh, the Bach cello suites or the um, the vi- suites for solo, the partitas and sonatas for solo violin by Bach too. You might find something from one of the slow movements from the cello suites. Okay, Brian's shaking his head. He gets it. All right. Okay. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this and. Uh, I hope maybe I can talk to you again sometime about I would love sacred that. text and other directions. Yeah, I would love it. Okay, and, and if you could send um, oh yes. a copy, that would be wonderful. We will send this to you. Uh, we'll send you a CD. We'll be producing it. Uh, you know, you'll probably get it in June sometime. Um, okay, and or maybe earlier. Brian would like to speak with the engineer before you hang up. Sure, and um, uh, if I can make a slight request too in mm-hmm. your introduction. Yes, I have, uh, as you may. As you probably do know, um, two new books just out. One is um, called "Jesus: What He Really Said and Did." Yeah, I, I'd like to talk to you about that sometime too. Oh, I, I would I love really, that. You yeah, know, you're such a good interviewer. It would be a, uh, a great privilege for me to well. talk with you about that. Um, and then the other one is "Loving What Is," which I mentioned mm-hmm. um, with my wife Byron Katie. So if if that if there's any way that could be part of the introduction, um, I'd appreciate it. It 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 can it may be part of the introduction. What I can certainly do is reference those on the website, and Good. people do tend to look at the website, and Good. I'm sure they will look at the website for yours because they'll want to read 
what we've been talking about. So, um, and I have both of those, and I'm I've been really enjoying both of them. So, Wonderful. okay, thank you. Yeah, and and if you um, <coughs> if you want to talk about the Jesus book, um, just get back in touch with All the right. publicist. We we are probably going to be going weekly um, at the beginning of next year. Right now, we're doing monthly shows, and we've also been focused on themes that have emerged from September 11th and sort of where we are as a nation, but when we go weekly, we'll have so much more room to do many different subjects, and so... Oh, excellent. Yeah, okay. You know, speaking of that, and I'll hand you over to the engineer. All right. Um, uh, I don't know if you've taken a look at Living What Is, but um, if and when you do, you might see how amazingly powerful um, Katie's work is with people who have gone through the worst kind of tragedy and trauma, and, and there's even one piece on the September 11th really? uh, event in the book. It, and so I'm thinking that when it, when that happens, the weekly format, mm-hmm. to have her on would be amazing. It's it's on page 219. It's a dialogue called Terrorism in New York City. Okay. So I, take a look at that and see I if will. you think it's appropriate. I will. Good. All right. Thank All right. You. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Here's the engineer. Bye.